Amen. We're going to continue our sermon series this morning entitled Living in the Last Days. Today's sermon is entitled Do Not Be Ashamed. And the passage is from 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. Next week we're going to be in the middle of chapter 2 of 2 Timothy. And I've mentioned previously that, that we're studying our way through the Paul's final letter that he wrote that's included in the New Testament. And, uh, but we're not going to cover every single verse, and so I've encouraged you previously to read through the entire book of Second Timothy. Uh, repeatedly would be good, and so this coming week would be be a time that would be beneficial to read through it again. So, from the Word of God, Paul's second letter to Timothy, chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. Paul speaking to his protege. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Amen. The word of God from 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. Embarrassing situations. We've all found ourselves in embarrassing situations, haven't we? Paul wrote to Timothy to remind him here in today's passage, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner, rather join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Some embarrassing situations are funny embarrassing. Like the time I split the seam of my pants, like from here to here, and didn't know it. I had on a pair, of, it was the middle of the Alaska winter, and it snowed over five feet the night before, and so I pulled those outer pants on just to, you know, protect my... Uh, pants that I was wearing to church that day from, from the wet of the snow and and I slipped between between the truck and the berm of snow in our driveway and, and went under the truck, you know, and had to, and you know, I'm like not, you know, underwater, under frozen water, under the level five foot level of the snow. And so I had to find the rear tire and the side of the body of the truck and get myself back up. Well, when I went down, I split the seam on my pants, but I didn't know it because I had on outer pants over it. So I went to church early, and I shoveled the walkway clear, and, and there were people in the church that owned construction companies, and in the wintertime in that town, the construction companies contracted themselves out to plow snow. And so they would come for free and plow the church parking lot, you know, but I had to move it out from, from the entryway to get it out there where they remove it. And so I, I did all that, and I, and I went inside, you know, took my <coughs> took my my snow boots off, took my outer pants off, put my shoes on that I was going to wear on Sunday morning, and I was there alone for a long time. And um, But people saw me before Sunday school class, and people saw me before the service, and, and uh, my only hope is that it didn't show, because nobody said anything until uh, after we're done with the worship time, and I stand up to lead the, lead the prayer time, right? 
No. It was at the beginning of the service? Okay, so I stood up at the beginning of the service to open the service in prayer and uh, um, say the prayer. And Lucy, you know, I, and I open my eyes up to the prayer. And Lucy's in the back in the middle, like, you know, like, come here now. So I thought something was wrong. I didn't have any idea what it was, but she doesn't typically, like, you know, so something's up. So I go back, and she's like, your pants are split. I look down, and, and like, a foot and a half, they're split. You know, so, uh, and nobody, nobody ever admitted to, to seeing that except Lucy. So, so either they thought that was the kindest course to take, or the Lord shielded their eyes from something that would, you know, impact their lives forever. And so I had to go home, you know, so she came up and, and uh, continued the service while I had to run home, you know, and, and uh, it was a small town, we lived close, and so I ran home and got a new pair of pants on and came back. In the meantime, she told everybody what happened, so... Um, but anyway, uh, some some things are um, funny, embarrassing. So that was one of them. Just awesome to do that. That's what everybody wants to have when you stand up in front of the church. Um, and then there are some situations that can make us seriously embarrassed to be a Christian or to be identified with Christians. One of them for me is like every time the Westworld Baptist Church in Topeka, Kansas makes the news. Um, I don't know if you remember them, but their, their stance against homosexuals is downright hateful. Instead of offering the opportunity for repentance from sin and salvation by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, they just spew venomous condemnation and judgment. And they do it at celebrity events, and, and they do it at military funerals. And, and there's these Christian bikers that are veterans, military veterans, and they've, they've taken up um, stationing themselves around military funerals. You know, they keep their ear to the ground, they hear what Westboro Baptist is going to show up. And so they, they line the, the funeral area with hundreds of people standing shoulder to shoulder, and, and the Westboro Baptist uh, people that, that show up to spew that hatred, they haven't found the courage to like try to break through that line to get close enough to impact events like they used to. And that may be why we don't hear about them like we used to. But, but uh, just, just embarrassing. Um, I would never want to be associated with that. And sometimes we're tempted, I think, to be ashamed or to, or to remain silent not because of coarse language or any kind of protest. Um, for some of us, it's difficult for our beliefs to be known in the surrounding culture outside the church because there's such a, a stark difference. We feel awkward in carrying a Bible in public or being called on to pray at an event or being asked a question about our Christian faith among a group of people that uh, may not be Christian themselves or even saying to somebody like that that we attend church. So we're, we're in a series, as you know, uh, from 2 Timothy, called Living in the Last Days. From 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. And here in today's passage, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, Verse 8, Paul says to Timothy, Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, 
Do not be ashamed about the testimony about our Lord. One thing we need in terrible times are Christians who are not ashamed to take a stand for Jesus Christ. This is a problem that goes all the way back to the first century, like what part of why Paul wrote this letter to Timothy. Jesus, even before that, when Jesus was walking the earth, Jesus told Peter before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter protested, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. Big, bold statement, right? And then later that same evening, when he had just said that hours before, Peter was sitting in the courtyard when a little girl said, weren't you with Jesus? And you know what happened, right? Peter denied it. And then he went to the gateway, and a girl there said, you were with Jesus. And again, Peter denied it. But this time with an oath in his denial. And then a group of people inquired, your accent gives you away. You're a Galilean like him. I can tell by your accent. Um, Matthew 26 tells us about Peter. Then he began to call down curses and he swore to them, I don't know the man. And when the rooster crowed, Peter felt ashamed. Um, so th this uh, temptation to not be bold in our faith, to not always say, yeah, I follow Jesus, I believe, I know the truth, and, and you can know it too. Um, this temptation to, to downplay that or to deny that had evidently has been there forever. Maybe Timothy was facing the same temptation. I think he was because Paul addresses this with him multiple times. So here in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, Paul points out three areas of life that call for a bold response instead of embarrassment and shame when it comes to our faith in Jesus. Bold response number one, do not be ashamed of the person of Jesus Christ. We're living in a culture that seeks to de-emphasize Jesus and to elevate everybody and everything else to at least the same standard as God or superior to faith in Jesus Christ. Islam wants us to accept Allah as equal or superior. Hinduism wants us to believe that Parabrahman is one of um, a few hundred thousand gods. Buddhism wants us to embrace Buddha as the spiritual guide. And then our culture embraces humanism. Following this all the way back to the serpent in the Garden of Eden, we are tempted to believe that we ourselves are God. I define truth. I define right and wrong. I will say what is good and what is not. Day-goal abortions. You ever heard of them? Day-goal abortions. They're a Canadian uh, hardcore metal band. And they have a song with the following lyrics. I can do whatever I want because I am my own God. Don't have to worry if it's right or wrong, because I am my own God. With the, the name for the band, Day Glow Abortions. Before Paul died, he wrote a final reminder to his prized protege. We have that letter here in the New Testament, 2 Timothy. And in chapter 1, verse 8, Paul encourages the one he had mentored, do not be ashamed 
of the testimony about our Lord. We're almost 21 full centuries removed from Timothy's culture now. So it might be do us good to remember that Timothy was living during a time of intense persecution of Christians. When Paul wrote him this letter, he was writing from a Roman dungeon, prison cell, where he was chained. Judaism is one of the four major world religions, and Judaism teaches its followers to believe and embrace the Old Testament as God's law. They do not believe in Jesus Christ as Savior, and in fact, a crucified Savior is blasphemy to them. That would never happen to God's Savior in their belief system. So, in spite of his imprisonment, Paul encouraged Timothy not to be ashamed. There was intense persecution by the Roman government. There was intense persecution by the Jewish faith. And Paul is reminding, calling, encouraging Timothy, do not be ashamed. And I think that one reason sometimes for our embarrassment about Jesus Christ is because we have been given a false image of Jesus. I look back on my childhood, and I, th and I think I grew up seeing Jesus pictured as this young man with this serene expression on his face, a perfect complexion, beautiful hair that had just been shampooed and conditioned and, and blow-dried to perfection, staring serenely up toward the heavens. And that, those were the pictures that I saw of Jesus when I was a kid. Um, with that image, he could have been a model, right? He was like Fabio before there was Fabio. Um, I don't know too many men who do not know the scriptures who are inspired to follow a man like that. The truth is that Jesus worked with his earthly father in a carpenter's shop. Have you ever seen a carpenter's hands? One of my granddads was a carpenter. Um, they're strong, calloused, and splintered hands. They're usually dry and maybe even cracked somewhere, but strong, callous, splintered hands. That's what a carpenter's hands look like. Back then, um, their skin would have been weather-beaten, you know. They would have uh, started getting wrinkles early because of all the time they spent in the intense Middle Eastern heat. Um, their hair would have been dried out by the time that they spent in the sun. I don't believe that Jesus was a tender mama's boy, like those pictures indicated when I was a kid. Um, Jesus was the one who cleaned house with the wet temple, who calmed a raging storm with the sound of his voice, and who carried his cross, carried his own cross after 39 lashes across his back. Isaiah chapter 53 verses 2 and 3 say, speaking of the Savior, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him 
in low esteem. That's a radically different picture than that serene, blow-dry, dirty, blonde-headed Jesus that I saw in those pictures when I was a kid. Had Jesus been a graduate of Nazareth High School, he would not have been voted best looking, according to Isaiah. He did not stand out from his peers with his looks. In fact, it says here he was despised and rejected, and the masses held him in low esteem. But Jesus was a man who inspired men. He said to Matthew, follow me, and Matthew tells us himself that Matthew got up and followed him at once. When Jesus left Jericho, Matthew 20, a large crowd followed him. Maybe Jesus wasn't much to look at, but he was a man's man, and it has been estimated that Jesus walked over 5,000 miles during his three-year ministry. I use we very loosely, like we among the people of the whole earth. Um, we jog, we, we run a 5K race, and we get our exercise somehow, and we, and we feel really good about that. But Jesus walked 70 miles to be baptized. If you've ever read the book Heaven is for Real, or you've seen the movie, then you saw a picture of the Jesus that Colton Burpo saw. Um, Burpo is a tough last name to grow up with, I think. Um, he was a, a kid that grew up in Imperial, Nebraska, about an hour from where we lived for six years in McCook. And, and he had a, a near-death experience where he came close enough to death that his spirit was, he had an out-of-body experience. And he saw heaven, and he saw grandparents and other people that he knew from this life in heaven. And he saw Jesus. And um, then later, he, in, in the research being done to write the book, he saw a painting of Jesus made by a European girl who had almost died and had seen Jesus. And she was artistic with paint, and she painted a, a picture of Jesus. And when, when young Colton saw that, he said, that's him. That's Jesus. That's who I saw. And that picture that she painted, and she and Colton both testified to having seen um, Jesus wasn't pretty. He didn't have long flowing hair. Um, in the picture, he looks like a man with unkept hair. And he's got this beard that's not perfectly trimmed and combed out. And I believe that that image that that girl painted and that got adopted into the book and the movie uh, Heaven is for Real that image is a lot more realistic perhaps than the Jesus the image of Jesus that I grew up with um, if you haven't read that book it's worth reading and, and the movie's worth seeing very well done and, and the, the movie perfectly follows the book and when we lived in Nebraska, the Burpos still lived 
again, um, Imperial. They stayed in that community. Uh, his dad was, was a bivocational pastor, and um, they were salt of the earth followers of Jesus. And so, um, with complete confidence, I recommend reading that book and seeing the movie Heaven is for Real. Um, when you think of Jesus, it's okay to think of Jesus cleansing the temple or Jesus standing in a boat with the sound of his voice calming the storm. Think of Jesus who faced the soldiers in the Garden of Gethsemane and acted well and let his destiny play out. Think of Jesus who was accused never Do not be ashamed of the testimony of Jesus Christ, the Jesus of the Bible. He could replace your roof. He could build a deck. He could stay up all night fishing, walk a mountain trail for miles and miles. And he could save. So do not be ashamed of the testimony of Jesus Christ. Bold response number two. Do not be ashamed of the people of Christ. All of us have different personalities that make us unique. And uh, if you look in a thesaurus, unique is another word for peculiar or strange. <laughs> Paul reminds us, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Paul is telling Timothy, don't be ashamed of me either. And and uh, some of the early Christians, it's clear that they were embarrassed because of Paul. Their missionary was in prison. The society, some elements in the society, and the government of that day were publicly against him, condemning him. Also from 2 Timothy chapter 1, a little farther on in the chapter, verses 15 and 16. You know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me. This is Paul telling Timothy from a prison cell. You know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including Phagellus and Hermogenes. And then he goes on to say in verse 16, May the Lord show mercy to the household of Onesiphorus. Because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. So in these two verses, Paul contrasts three men who had all formulated an opinion of him. Two had deserted Paul. One had been a blessing. Paul is in prison and he commends Onesiphorus and he condemns the others. Sometimes we're not ashamed of Jesus, but we're totally embarrassed by his followers. God's people do not always represent him well. Their names appear in the police block. They lose their temper in the community or in the church lobby. Or you have invited your friends to church for months. And the Sunday they show up with you, I preach on tithe. Right? <laughs> 
The next time you're embarrassed by another believer, I want to encourage you to remember two truths. The first one is God can bless the weakest effort if it's sincere. God's power is most visible in our weakness. But we often worry about all the wrong things. We hear a communion meditation that includes a dangling participle, and we worry, right? Or we feel like our Sunday school lesson seems to fall flat, and we worry. Or we pray a prayer that has some grammatical errors in it, and we worry. But God reminded Paul in 2 Timothy in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Second, for every believer who represents the Lord poorly, there are many who represent him well. In Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, a husband and wife, were struck down in the sanctuary because they had lied about their offering. They sold a piece of land. They said they were taking all the proceeds from the sale and donating it, but they only donated a portion. It was like an unforced error. You know, they didn't have to say that, but they did. Um, and they're struck down because they lied about their offering. Now, that incident was unfortunate. Unfortunate enough it's recorded in Scripture. But Ananias and Sapphira did not represent the norm. Don't forget that from not, literally nothing, the Jerusalem church at that time was populated with over 5,000 believers. So, it wasn't the norm. Remember the televangelist Jimmy Swagger? He was world famous. You could find him every day of the week on TV. Um, his ministry at one time supported over 30,000 underprivileged children worldwide. The Church of the Nazarene supports children so that they get they get a square meal every day, they get the uniform they need to go to school, they get the tuition paid and the books and supplies that they need to provide an education. Jimmy Swaggart's ministry at one time was doing that for over 30,000 children worldwide. And then he was caught very publicly using the services of a prostitute. Not once, twice. Um, it's humiliating for the church and for the gospel. But I want to remind you that for every Jimmy Swagger, there's a Corey Ten Boom. There's a Billy Graham. There's a James Dobson. There's a Bill Wilson. If you don't know who he is, he's worth looking up. He started the ministry that started in New York City to underprivileged children that come to them and do a Sunday school every, every Sunday. And then it became every Sunday at midweek. And now he does it in other cities. And probably around the world now, it's probably over 100,000 kids every week are ministered to through the ministry that he started. He doesn't have good uh, grammar. He's got this high-pitched, nasally voice. He doesn't have um, advanced theological training. He was, he was left on a street corner in New York City when he was like three years old and, and sat there for over 24 hours. His mom sat him there and walked away, said, I'll be back, and they didn't come back. 
he sat there over 24 hours because he had, what are you going to do when you're three? And your mom says, I'm going to be back. And a man that saw him hours after he was set there and then came by the next day on the way to work and saw him still, picked him up, took him home, asked his wife to look after him. You know, he turned him into the social services, ended up, ended up uh, foster parenting him and then adopting him. And, and he grew up in a Christian household with a burden to go back and help those kids like me. And without any training, without any education that would supposedly prepare you that you know for that, he had a burden and a calling and a gifting by God and started this amazing ministry. So if if you're not familiar with Bill Wilson, um, read up about him. I think Bill Wilson's also the name of the guy that started Alcoholics Anonymous. So this is a different Bill Wilson than that. So all that to say, whether whether it unknown or well known, I just want to encourage you to be careful about criticizing the Lord's people. Just be careful. Just because other people do that, you don't have to. Um, no one is perfect. I don't know if you knew that, but no one's perfect. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 2, for in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And I grieve for the people who don't ever sit down with somebody and talk it through, but they're willing to talk about them behind their back. I grieve for those people because they live in light of Matthew chapter 7, verse 2 as well. Um, and and uh, as angry as I get with somebody else, I better be a lot more concerned with the plank in my own eye before I start going after other people's splinter. So, keep that in mind. Bold response number three. Do not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do not be ashamed. Gospel is a, is a Middle English or Old English word. Gospel, good spell, that means good news. Good news, okay? Do not be ashamed of the good news of Jesus Christ. Paul writes to his protege, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, Join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He has saved us and called us to a holy life. I want you to notice in, in, in these few words three aspects of the gospel, three aspects of the good news. First, the gospel is a message of salvation. Some are embarrassed to mention salvation because it implies that without Jesus Christ, we're lost. And so we like tone down saying your salvation in Jesus' name. To declare someone lost um, sounds judgmental to the world that we live in. And at the risk of being considered judgmental, at the risk of being seen as politically incorrect, would you listen carefully to what I'm about to say? Okay? And I'm going to preface what I'm about to say and I want you to listen carefully to me. Okay? If you're on the corner right here by Main Street, and there's, a, and there's a cattle hauler coming through town. The speed limit is 25, and he might be going 32. Not that any cattle hauler in Southern Idaho has ever done that. But just in case, hypothetically, you're standing on the corner, and here comes a cattle hauler come, coming south on Main Street going 32 miles an hour, and you're about to step out. And if you step out, you're going to be in front of that loaded semi-truck and get hit by it. Would you rather meet it? 
telling you stop, that's a bad idea, and, and avoid disaster? Or would you rather me say, God bless you, go in peace, everybody makes their own choices, it's all good, no way's better than the other, and let the watcher step out and get run over? Which would you rather me do? It's obvious in, in that scenario, right? You'd rather me say, hey, stop. What if the consequences are eternal? What if there's heaven and there's hell? And what, are, what if it's one or the other for every person? So, now, um, please listen carefully to what I'm about to say. Without Jesus Christ in your life, you're lost in your sins. I know because I've been there. I've experienced that. So I know that. Um, not just personal experience, because I'm not the one who decides. The Bible teaches that. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Okay, if all of us have sinned, then that includes me. And if all of us have sinned, that includes you. And fall short of the glory of God. Um, then the Bible goes on to tell us in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. So all of us have sinned. We fall short of the glory of God. We've lost any ability of our own to be in heaven for eternity. So the wages of sin is death. And, and in the Old Testament, Numbers chapter 32, verse 23 says, you may be sure that your sin will find you out. You can deny the reality of that your whole life. You can spend every breath you have saying, oh, that's not true, that's not going to apply to me. I, I don't have to worry about wrong or right, because I'm God. You can do that. But you are going to face the reality someday. But listen to what the Bible also teaches. Um, it says in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, there's no one righteous, not even one. So just let it sink home that this includes you. And it includes me. The Bible. So the Bible makes it crystal clear, without exception, you're not going to heaven. You haven't earned it. You've lost the right. You can't earn it now. You fall short. But then the Bible, having clearly, abundantly established the need for a Savior goes on to teach us in, in continuing on in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's where eternal life is. It's not like maybe I'll decide in Jesus and something else or I'll, I'll decide what's truth. The truth is revealed for us here. But the gift of God is eternal life increased in Christ Jesus our Lord. Where else besides that? Nowhere else besides that. Who else besides that? Nobody else besides that. And in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, if, okay, if, so one of two paths is going to happen after if. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If. Okay, one of two things happens after that statement, and it's based upon the, the free will that we have to choose what our response is going to be. 
Remember, if you declare with your mouth, if you believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's why it's good news. But you can't have good news without properly understanding the bad news. The bad news is we've all sinned. And without Jesus to intervene, we're doomed to eternity in hell. But the good news is that Jesus came to earth, lived a perfect life, died a perfect death in our place, and he rose from the dead. He's right now preparing a place for us to be with him forever. And the promise is that he's going to come back and take us there. So, first of all, um, it's that the gospel is a message of salvation. Second, the gospel is a message of immortality. It is a message of salvation, and we are saved for eternity. Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, Our Savior, Jesus Christ, has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, through the good news. The gospel, the good news, brings hope to those who face death. And who would that be? Oh yeah, that's all of us, right? Without exception. Paul was facing death as he wrote this letter, so man, he was zeroed in on that concept. Timothy worried that he faced death because of his association with Paul, like a whole bunch of other people, right? But the good news is when Jesus rose from the grave, Scripture says he destroyed death and brought and has brought life and immortality. And from Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, it says, People are, are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. So we can deny Jesus. We can deny that there's one way of salvation. We can deny that there's one truth and he is the truth. We can deny, we can deny, we can deny all of our lives. But Scripture tells us people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. So we will face judgment. And so your decision today is do you face judgment, cleansed and forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ and welcomed into his Father's house in his name? Or do you face that judgment without Jesus to be um, prohibited from entering heaven to spend eternity instead in hell? So Jesus didn't nullify death. He conquered death. Solomon says in the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament, there's a time to be born and there's a time to die. So we will face that death. But Jesus destroyed it, conquered it. Death cannot keep its prey anymore. Some Christians, I think, are embarrassed about that because you can't take um, the conquering of the grave into the science lab and reproduce that. In an experiment. But Jesus, we know, rose from the grave. It's more proven to us than the existence of any of the Caesars. It's more proven to us than the existence of the theologian John Wesley that lived a few hundred years ago. It's more proven. There's more facts 
outside of the Bible that Jesus lived and died and rose from the dead. Okay? He rose from the grave. He appeared to the women. That's recorded inside and outside of the Bible at the time. He appeared to his disciples. That's recorded inside and outside of the Bible at the time. He appeared on the Emmaus Road to a couple of believers. That's recorded inside and outside of the Bible at the time. And Paul writes us about a crowd of 500 people who saw the resurrected Jesus Christ all at the same time. And that's recorded outside of the Bible, not by one. Yeah, just lost my not by one, but by two. Who came from different schools of thought within Judaism, neither one of which ever professed faith in Jesus Christ. They just were given it this morning for their time because they had the integrity to record the facts as they were observed. And both of those men recorded that Jesus appeared before. Um, so, you don't have that kind of proof for any other historical event. The number of manuscripts of the New Testament that agree is in the tens of thousands. It's over 30,000 manuscripts of all or part of the New Testament. And, and the disagreement between the wording that's written down in the manuscripts is less than 1%. And it's stuff like like one version, one manuscript says the, and another manuscript says a. There's no um, uh, important belief for Christianity that it, it is in question or contradictory in, in all of those tens of thousands of manuscripts. There are recordings of, of Greek, there are uh, writings of supposed Greek gods um, that there's like 60 parcel manuscripts for and, and uh, everybody you know or or other historical figures and, and they're in the tens of parcel manuscripts with disagreement in them and the world around us is just quick to believe that that person existed and what they did or what they said is accurately recorded in those few manuscripts. So if we were anything anywhere near as generous uh, with Jesus and the manuscripts that record his life as we are with these other historical documents, my bad, huh? Okay. Um, then of course we would believe. It would be authoritative like nothing else ever that occurred in history. So, while I can't speak for everybody, yes, test. Okay, good. Thank you. I went from having full bars to running the battery. I can't speak for everybody, but I can speak for myself. I believe that he is the resurrection and the life. And I believe that he will return with the sound of the trumpet. And I believe that if he can return from the dead on his own power, he has enough power to return for me too. That's what I believe. 
and I and I don't believe it because it's it's only some mystical personal experience, personal experience. It is every bit that, and I don't deny that, and I don't minimize that. But the historical facts, no, in the standard of historical facts that we use for everything else that we say we know, none of it is substantiated like the life, death, and resurrection and resurrection appearances of Jesus Christ. Nothing else in history comes even close to the substantiation for that. So if we're going to apply the standard to everything else, how about we apply it to Jesus and become a follower of his? I believe that if he can return from the dead on his own power, he has enough power to come and take me home too. And third, the gospel is a message of responsibility. We have been saved to serve. So do not be ashamed to give a verbal testimony about what you believe. Um, Y'all know that I'm working another job. And the woman that sits at the desk next to me is into Wicca. You know, white magic and all this stuff. You know, the symbol is a pentagram with a circle around it. You know, uh, it's with a single point on top, not the two points. But, um, you know, and she carries this bag of polished rocks. And when she's not having a good day, she puts her polished rocks out and sets them in a certain order. And, and those polished rocks are going to, like, put out a, I'm not using the correct word because I don't know what they are. I don't mean to be disrespectful, but put out like a vine, you know, this positive energy. Um, I just grieve for her. And every once in a while, she'll start a short conversation and, and inquire about my faith. And so in the meantime, I have a relationship with her that is positive and respectful. And so every once in a while, you know, she asks me a question, and I get to tell her a little bit about Jesus. I get to tell her a little bit about what the Bible says and, and about the Creator who made the rocks. You know, if you think the rocks got some power in them, how about how about the God who made them? So um, we have a responsibility to not be ashamed to give a verbal testimony about what we believe. Um, you know, the world around us sure isn't ashamed. In fact, I believe more than any generation before, the world is broadcasting their sinful lifestyle by the minute. Uh, it used to be, you know, around the water cooler at work or in a private conversation on the telephone or a personal conversation. Today, it's online on a blog or on some social media outlet like Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or a bunch of others. It's out there for millions, billions to see. If the world isn't ashamed of their public sins, why should we be ashamed about our testimony of redemption that Jesus buys us back and sets us free from all that? provides us forgiveness and restoration of our relationship with the God who created us. Why wouldn't we be ready to tell them about that? So, if you don't share your faith because you're ashamed, would you just remember one thing? God hasn't called us to be popular. He's called us to be obedient. So, do not be ashamed and if necessary, join Paul in suffering for the gospel. I once read about a preacher who survived the 2004 India tsunami. 
there was a tsunami and, and like washed away inland in the low-lying areas and, and there was death and destruction for miles. Um, him and his family lived in there. The tsunami wiped out his village. His family drowned. And somehow the backwash, when all that big tsunami wave was going back into the sea, um, swept him out into the ocean. And where he was swept out into the ocean, there, there was him and six other men that ended up being close to each other. And they're out there now, you know, pushed like way offshore in the after effects of this tsunami, swimming for their lives. And they saw this large bell of hay floating in the ocean. It was the only thing sticking up above water level. So they swam over there and got onto that bell of hay. And uh, I think some of you know where this is going. What they soon discovered was that a nest of king cobras that were still alive was in that bell of hay. So the preacher jumped off, and the other men tried to jump off. But out of the seven men who had climbed onto that bell of hay, six of them were bitten by king cobras and died. So his family drowned, his villages destroyed. He got on the only thing that floats in the ocean, and it's full of king cobras. Um, that's officially a bad day, right? So he jumped off. The other six were bitten and killed, but the preacher survived. He survived what? To what? To face a life without his entire family, his wife and children, all gone. And to, and to face a life that his village and everything for miles around it were completely destroyed. And, and the last I heard, over 10 years later, he was still preaching the good news that Jesus saves. So, what about us? What about me? What about you? What keeps you from sharing your faith? How small of a setback does it take to silence you? Do not be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord. And if necessary, join with Paul in suffering for the gospel.